If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Ephesians in chapter 4. Ephesians in chapter 4. We're going to verses 1 through 16 in our time together this morning, 1 through 16 of Ephesians 4. This is part 6 of our series we've entitled Dearest Place on Earth, Exploring Biblical Church Membership. We pray it's been fruitful uh, and challenging for you thus far, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I'll be in the New American Standard again this week, so if you want to follow along, you can follow along on the screen behind me. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's go ahead and read this together. <clears throat> Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1. God's Word says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who had ascended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipment of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Amen. It's God's word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. In the uh, early 1970s, psychologist Henry Tajfel conducted an experiment, the findings of which would be, come to be known as the minimal group paradigm. And the experiment was intending to answer this question. What are the minimal things people will divide in groups over? Okay. The study found that people were willing to divide over things as meaningless as eye color, favorite paintings, or even similar shirt color. They then found that people were willing to show favoritism to their group and against the other group based on these meaningless distinctions. They even found that people were more willing to see their group win rather than do something that would benefit everyone altogether. And again, that was based on meaningless distinctions. And the study, while groundbreaking for its time, reveals something we already inherently know, and that's this. We will divide over just about anything. You know it's true? You know it's true. Our default mode, whether we want to admit it or not, is to divide from one another. We aren't simply willing to divide. We're willing to divide over things that don't matter much at all. In fact, so divided are we as a people that a poll was taken several years ago around a political election asking about people's opinions on a slew of political topics. And the only thing that people overwhelmingly across the board, across the aisle, agreed on was that we as a nation are divided. And they agreed that the divide was troublesome, and yet it seems, while we are willing to admit that we are divided and that it's troubling, we aren't, willing, we aren't troubled enough to do much about it. Now something I shared, it's been a while, but you may still vaguely remember because it's fairly memorable, is a post I found called, I Miss 912. And the person who wrote it said this, I miss 912. I would never want another 911, but I miss the America of 912. Stores ran out of flags to sell because they were being flown everywhere. People were Americans before they were upper or lower class, Republican or Democrat. We hugged people without caring if they ate Chick fil A or wore Nikes. On 912, what mattered more to us was what united us, not divided us. See, our natural propensity to divide from one another. 
is so pervasive and deep that it takes a world-changing tragedy to create unity among us. Even still, we know even that unity didn't last very long, did it? Last year, our willingness to divide over basically everything was put on full display. Isn't that true? We divided over the seriousness of the virus. We divided over closures, social distances, even pro-mask versus anti-mask in the most ridiculous battle in the history of my life. We divided over racial justice and politics, reopening and then politics again. Truly, it should be no surprise that a sinful fallen world hates one another. What else can be expected from fallen people? There's a reason why in the last century we both fancied ourselves as more enlightened than ever, yet witnessed the bloodiest century in human history. The fallen world divides. That's what sin does. But what about the church? How should the church look, I wonder? Should it be distinct from the divided world, or should it simply mirror it? Does unity even matter in the church? Is it our job to create unity? What does disunity say about what we believe about the gospel and God and our priorities and affections? Our present text speaks loudly and urgently to all of these questions. The answers are quite explicit and reveal that God cares deeply about unity in his church and that to disrupt that unity is a grave and serious matter indeed. It's important to note before diving into the text, the context in which it's placed. Ephesians is one of the easiest epistles to neatly divide in the New Testament. A casual observation will reveal that the first three chapters are beautiful descriptions of what God has done through Christ to rescue wayward rebels and adopt them as sons and daughters. If you just look at your Bible and look through chapters 1 through 3, you see that Paul waxes eloquent about how God has chosen us before the foundation of the world, how he has adopted us through Christ, how he has given us redemption and forgiveness through the blood of Jesus has lavished on us grace upon grace upon grace, how the Spirit has sealed us for the day of the Lord as a guarantee on our inheritance, how Christ occupies the highest seat in the cosmos, how we will all bow down before him, how we were formerly dead in trespasses, walking in disobedience, but God, being rich in mercy, rescued us from the domain of darkness, saved us by grace so that we would walk in good works, how Jesus had kicked down the wall of hostility, created a new people in him, that he shed his blood to bring unity amongst former enemies, rallying around the common gospel and allegiance to Christ the King. The gospel, that gospel indicative Paul gives in the first three chapters then, in the final three chapters, he gives the gospel imperative. What do I mean that, by that? In other words, he spent three chapters saying what Christ has done for us. And then he spends the last three chapters telling us how we ought to respond to that gospel. If we had just the first three chapters, we wouldn't know how to respond and live in light of the gospel. If we had just the last three chapters, we wouldn't know from whence we derive motivation and power to pursue obedience. And it is after three chapters of gospel goodness that Paul begins chapter four. Isn't it interesting that after this beautiful telling of the gospel, the very first thing he talks about in regards to how to respond to the gospel has to do with our approach to the church. Did you notice that? The very first thing he says, he begins chapter 4 with the word therefore, which basically packs with it the meaning of based on everything I've said, this is what you should do with that information. He thus implores them to walk in us in a manner worthy of the calling of the gospel of Christ. And this word walk that Paul uses, it means in every area of one's life. Walk is the settled disposition and actions of a person day to day, even moment by moment. And so what is the very first thing he talks about in regards to walking in a manner worthy of the gospel? 
the Christian's relation to the church. Why? Because the natural outflow of actions by a heart gripped by gospel truth is lived out in the local church. A response to the gospel that does not find its expression in the local church is one that is disconnected from the model given in Scripture, as has been apparent for the last five weeks. And if we are to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, this means Paul envisions Christian living in a distinct way from the world. And it reminds us that church membership is only for Christians. Paul envisions life change in every facet of our lives that is ethically different than the fallen world. Why? Because what he said about the gospel in chapters 1 through 3 is true. Christ really has saved us so that we can pursue life the way God intended before the fall. And so Paul envisions church membership as helping us walk in this manner worthy of the calling of the gospel. It gives shape and direction to our lives. It reminds us of the good, glorious truths of the gospel. It holds the beauty of Jesus before our fickle and wandering eyes. And it joins us to other people who will call us on our wanderings until God is back to the narrow path. That's the essence of the discipline we talked about last week. Church membership and discipline helps us from rejecting the gospel with our lives. It helps us to repent and pursue faithfulness because we all, each and every one of us, are susceptible to giving into sin and waywardness. Isn't that true? So in part five this morning of this series, we will look at more marks of membership, and then in the coming weeks, we'll look at the ordinances and polity before we wrap up in mid-June. So three more marks of healthy church member today. Number one. A healthy church member zealously preserves unity. Healthy church member zealously pursues, preserves unity. Now, did you notice that Paul does not call them or us to create unity? He doesn't say in verse 3, be diligent to create the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Does he say that? He says, be diligent Make haste, be zealous, be eager, spare no effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why does he say preserve rather than create? It's because when God creates a people, when he forms the church, he does so on the basis of what Christ has already done. It's because when God creates the church, Unity is already inherently present. The unity is in the Holy Spirit who both creates and sustains it. But that does not mean we are free from our role in preserving unity. Because although unity is already present, it needs to be maintained. Everett Ferguson says this, The human task is not to achieve unity among themselves, but to keep the unity already created. Similarly, Andrew Lincoln, in his commentary, says the church is not a chance collection of individuals. It has unity already given by God's Spirit, and the top priority on its agenda must be to preserve this. So think back to the introduction with the longings for 9-12 again. Just think about that. The attacks on 9-11 created a unity that wasn't already present. We weren't united before that, were we? I mean, do you remember the 2000 presidential election, for goodness sake? We weren't united before that. We weren't united on 9-10. But 9-11 brought us together. It created a new unity, but it didn't last long, did it? I mean, this year will be 20 years since that day, and 20 years in the grand scheme of things is not a very long time. But you look around and you don't think, dang, 9-11 really brought us together and we stayed united ever since. Have you ever thought that? Instead, you look around and you go, wow, we might hate each other now more than ever. Because even something as powerful as that isn't strong enough to unite us in a lasting way, which speaks profoundly to how willing to divide we are. The church, however, 
does not have to create unity like that. It's already present. But although the church does not have to generate unity, it nonetheless must work diligently to preserve it because many factors will come along that threaten to corrupt or destroy the spirit-given oneness. And the same propensity to divide that we see in the world exists in our hearts. So we have to fight against it with the gospel. So it's important to remember that unity isn't created by us, it's present already, but... We must do everything in our power to maintain it. Unity is a gift from God to the church. But expressing it is every church's ongoing task. Remembering this will help us in many respects. It will help us to unite on things that really matter. See, if we were the creators of unity, then we would unite around non-gospel things. We would divide up into little tribes of sameness. We would unite around things like our common age, our common race, common life stages, common opinions on music and programs and structures of our own making. Seeing that the Spirit gives unity because of Christ's blood will both help us to unite around the right things and see how vile and gospel-denying division is. In other words, It would cause us to take unity more seriously. Did you notice that Paul uses this word one seven times in verses four through seven? Did you notice that? One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all things. Do you think that was purposeful to make a point? (laughs) This is where we find unity. Chapter three tells us that Jesus died died for the creation of the unity he gifts to the church. I just want you to think about that for a moment. The second person of the Trinity entered flesh, was rejected and scorned, abandoned and nailed to a Roman cross, died naked and alone, had the wrath of God poured out on his innocent shoulders so that he could offer himself and the spirit he sent as the common denominators for a new people to rally around to reach the world and glorify God. He died. The perfect son of God died to bring unity and create a people. He handed the church the gospel to steward, and the church thus rallies in one body the one binding spirit who points to the only hope for the world in the one Christ and the singular gospel, baptizing people into the same faith, serving the one God who is over all and in all and through all. Every other marker that we try to unite around is flimsy and it's hollow. You want to unite with each other around your common age and race and opinions? Okay, but you aren't saying or doing anything that's unique or lasting or distinct from unbelievers. Don't unbelievers unite around that stuff? Only the gospel is a lasting and strong binding agent that unites people across all kinds of walks of life. A true sign of inherent sickness in a church is its willingness to unite around not the gospel, but grievances. To gossip and slander. To tear down, to get into groups and holy huddles and talk about what they're against and what they don't like. That's not gospel unity. And it has no positive effect on the watching world and it destroys churches. More churches have been destroyed by that than martyrdom ever could. Ray Ortland says, whenever we gather around grievance rather than Jesus, that's counterfeit community, black market relationships, and that negativity is on a collision course with reality. It cannot succeed long term. But don't you see that if unity is already present in the body because of Christ's broken body and spilled blood and present spirit, that to divide is incredibly egregious. Do you see that? If there's 
division in churches is, isn't because Christ didn't give it, give unity. It's because we failed to be dil- diligent about maintaining it. But I, I really don't think we have understood how incredibly egregious division in the church is. I really don't. Our language around division comes with a shoulder shrug and a flowery language of mere difference of opinion rather than a trampling on the blood of Christ underfoot, which is what it is. We should be able to have difference of opinion and healthy disagreements without anathematizing one another. But allowing difference of opinion to be elevated to a place that overrides our common Christ shows just how immature we are, which is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. Division in the body is like taking a perfectly healthy person and injecting poison into their bloodstream. It was healthy, but you introduced the sickness. If no poison is injected, it would be healthy and able to do what it was meant to do. Instead, the poison becomes like this substance it's dependent on. That's why, I bet you've noticed, churches repeat these divisions in cycles. They become addicted to controversy. They don't know what to do with a lack of a fight. And this is also why healthy churches have healthy discipline, because discipline is like medicine for the body. It comes along and says, why are you doing this? Is this worth dividing the body over? Don't you have one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one calling and one God? Knock it off and get over yourself. We have a mission to pursue. We have to stop allowing poison to be injected into our bloodstream. We have to see that Jesus, chapter 3, tore down the walls that would have formerly divided us. And so, do you realize this? To divide is to attempt to undo the work of Christ by re-erecting the walls that he tore down. I mean, you think of all the damage that the Berlin Wall did to Germany And then imagine, after it got torn down, someone coming and trying to rebuild it. That'd be absurd. Now, how much more absurd is it to claim Christ as our foremost love and then attempt to undo his wall-destroying death? This means we have to see division. When we see division perk up in our hearts or in others in the church, we go in the spirit of love and we remind them of the uniting gospel. That's walking worthy of the calling with which we have been called. But those who want to divide and divide and divide and divide and divide and divide, no matter how many times you lovingly call them to forsake that sin, they show their fruit that they reject the life Christ calls them to live in light of the gospel. Repentance is always offered and available, but it's the job of church members to not allow poison to flow through its veins. You know, the early church took division a lot more seriously than we do. Because they saw it as Christ-denying behavior. Church father Cyprian said, what, you, what unity does he keep? What love does he maintain or consider? Who savage with madness of discord divides the church, destroys the faith, disturbs the peace, dissipates charity, profanes the sacraments. Does he think he has Christ who acts in opposition and bears arm against the church? He contends against God's appointment. Augustine said that those who would forsake the unity of the church can be identified because they grab every opportunity to split the church. He went so far as to say that the mark of a false Christian, the wolf in sheep's clothing, is a willingness to split Christ's body into warring factions. Brothers and sisters, beloved of God, Preserving unity is serious business. And it's your business. Dividing the church is a heinous act. This doesn't mean forgiveness and repentance and restoration isn't offered. It's always offered. But we have to see how damaging division is and that it is members' job to zealously preserve unity. Marcus Barth in his commentary says, It's hardly possible to render exactly the urgency contained in the underlying Greek verb of verse 3. Not only haste and passion, but a full effort of the whole man is meant, involving his will, sentiment, reason, physical strength, and total attitude. 
The mood of the participle found in the Greek text excludes passivity, quietism, a wait-and-see attitude, or a diligence tempered by all deliberate speed. Yours is the initiative. Do it now. You are to do it. I mean it. Such are the overtones of verse 3. See, because we could read this call to preserve unity as passivity, as if as long as I'm not being actively divisive, I'm obeying and fulfilling this verse. No, you are not, because that's not what Paul's saying in verse 3. He is not saying that we aren't just supposed to not be divisive. He's saying urgently, actively, purposefully, intentionally pursue unity. There is no hint whatsoever of passivity in this verse or section. So how do we maintain unity? Verse 2 says, we must embody at least these four characteristics. Do you see them? Humility gentleness, patience, and putting up with one another in love. This again shows us that church membership is a biblical idea. How do you obey even verse 2 without covenanting with a local church? And since clearly God's calling on the Christian is not a private relationship, but expressed in community, it is essential, fundamental, paramount that members embody these four characteristics. Think of What kind of an environment where every member was committed to just what we see in verse 2 would look like? Would that not enhance life together? And what feeds these four characteristics is the gospel and God's own love to us. Barth says, the mutual love of the saints resembles the love shown by God because it is unselfish. It does not calculate or expect any gain for one who loves. It is forgiving, outgoing, self-delivering. Now, I like to illustrate the love that the Bible calls us to to have in the church by thinking about marriage vows and the difference between a contract and a covenant. Do you know what the difference is? Contractual love, it's based on reciprocity. It's an exchange of goods and services. It says, I will love you if you meet my conditions, and if you don't, I will withdraw from you or withhold my serving or giving or loving until my conditions are met. That's a love we're prone to in our sinfulness and in our culture. It's why, more than ever, bailing is so easy. It's why we're commitment phobes. It's why the divorce rate is higher and the age we get married is later than ever. But it's fake love that is unrecognizable in scriptural call and definitions of love because it's not love, right? Love built on reciprocity. Would you call that love? Think of, okay, between the contract and a covenant. You all have contracts in your life, right? Like a bunch of them. You got a mortgage, you got insurance, you got a cell phone, right? Let's use your cell phone for an example. Let's say you have Verizon. You love Verizon? Like, like if they stop providing you service, Would you be like, man, I bet they're hard up for money. I love them so much. I'm just going to keep paying them. Would you do that? No, no, of course you wouldn't. If they stopped, uh, if you stopped paying, do you think they would be like, let's just keep giving them service because we love them? No, it's it's an exchange of good and services. Your your relationship is completely built on reciprocity. Now, you compare that to covenant of like marriage vows, okay? Let's say you went to a wedding. And they said, um, you know, the groom and bride wrote their own vows and they're going to recite them to each other, okay? And the husband says, I swear I'll love you if you keep the house clean. And she says, "Uh, okay, I'll keep the house clean if you mow the lawn every couple weeks. And he says, okay, I'll mow the lawn every couple weeks if you make me a hot dinner every night. And she says, okay, I'll make you a hot dinner every night if you make enough money to where we go out every now and again. Now, you're watching this. Are you going... They're so in love. Is that what you're saying? Like, these kids are going to make it. Is that what you're saying? You're like, I'm not sure they're getting out of the parking lot, right? Because what are the actual covenant marriage vows? Sickness and health. Richer and poor, right? For better or worse. It's saying, man, if we're rich, I'm going to buy a boat, and I'm going to call it the SS Sila. But if we're poor, we're going to split a Dr. Thunder, right? It's, It's this... It's not exchange of good and service. It's, it's me focusing on what I can be and do and become for her rather than what she's doing or failing to do for me. Do you see? 
That's biblical church membership. That's the love that Paul is talking about in the church. It's covenantal. It's not based on conditions. It's to say like marriage, I'm here, I'm staying, and I'm determined to love you at the cost of my life. If I don't get what I want, so what? I'm here for you and Christ not to satiate my desires. That's a love that unites. That's a love that is humble. That's a love that is gentle. That is a love that is long-suffering. And that, thus, is a love that reflects the gospel and character of God himself. Paul says we need these four things, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing one another's burden to be a healthy church that reflects the gospel. Because remember, biblical love is not primarily a mood, feeling, or abstract substance. It's shown through concrete actions, or it isn't love. You could say you love something or someone until you're blue in the face, but unless that love is shown in unconditional, self-sacrificial actions, you're just a clanging symbol. We need humility because our pride always threatens to cause us to elevate ourselves in an attempt to grab first place. D.A. Carson says, humility, gratitude, dependence on Christ, contrition, these are the characteristic attitudes of the truly converted. When the gospel truly does its work, proud Christian is an unthinkable oxymoron. We can define the word used by Paul here, the humility, as the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Like we talked about when we looked at Philippians, humility isn't self-abasement, it's not thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking of yourself less. Because let's be honest, a majority of things we divide over in the church have nothing to do with disagreements on the things that are in verses 4 through 6, do they? But are about things we want for ourselves and we think we deserve because we are all given to being egomaniacs. That's the context we live in. If we want it, right, this is what the world tells us. If we want it, we should get it because we are us and our desire overrides others because they aren't us. Gospel humility, however, prioritizes the gospel and others. It's so busy loving others that it has no time to advocate for self. To be gentle means to have self-control, to be meek. To be patient means to be long-suffering. It's to remember that God has been incredibly patient with you and your sins and your trip-ups and your struggles, which flows out to long-suffering to others. And he says, show tolerance for one another. Or maybe your translation says, bear with one another. Literally, it says, put up with one another. Because biblical membership is messy, It's patient, it's long-suffering, it's putting up with other sinners in order to build one another up and pursue the mission of Christ. We should be under no delusion that to pursue biblical membership will suddenly make us perfect or erase all of our problems. In fact, biblical membership will bring other problems to the fore because we will be even more invested in relationships with one another and relationships are messy. And do you know why? Because people are messy. The kind of community biblical membership creates dives below the surface and it's hard. But I'm telling you, it's so worth it because it will cause us to grow in ways we never thought possible and it will help us to mature and it will help us to prioritize what we ought to prioritize and it must be better because it's God's design. You notice that Paul says to put up with one another. And this is the last thing we'll note before we go to our next point. These two words, one another, are significant. Klein Snodgrass said this. He said, the focus on one another is significant. This word occurs 40 times in Paul's letters. Christians are part of each other and are to receive one another, think about one another, serve one another, love one another, build up one another, bear each other's burdens, submit to each other, and encourage each other. Christianity is a, I love this, Christianity is a God-directed, Christ-defined, other-oriented religion. Only with such direction away from self do we find ourselves. Biblical church membership helps us remember this. Second, a healthy church member is zealous to do ministry. Zealous to do ministry. You look at your text, you see that Paul says that Christ has given every Christian a gift in verse 7, echoing something that we saw similarly in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, for our purposes, I want you to know that Paul says he has given to each person and to the church 
leaders to equip the members for the work of service. Christ defeated death and ascended into the heavens. Why? He tells us, doesn't he? So that he might fill all things. In other words, he intends to make all things new. He intends to fill the world with the glory of God until and through the end of the age. And his plan to fill all things inextricably includes the church. It's, it's God's plan A, and there's no plan B. This filling all things, listen, at present involves the extension of the church to the world through the work of the ministry. This is plain. If you have your Bibles open, you just look at 310. It says that God rescued us so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be known to everybody. So what is Christ's plan for growth of the church? Christ's plan for growth, both numerically and spiritually, is each believer using the gift they've been given by the sovereign head of the church to do the work of ministry. That's Christ's plan for growth, both spiritually and numerically, of the church members. And Christ has given the church, he says, apostles and prophets, and they laid the foundation and gave us the word that we hold, and of which should inform our lives and churches. And he has given us missionaries, which you see it says evangelists. That's kind of what he means in our modern terms. And he has given the church pastors slash teachers. Now, even though these words appear to be separate in your translation, the and between pastor and teacher are not in the Greek. This is actually referring to the same office, what we call pastor or elder. And what is their task? It tells us, doesn't it? To teach and lead and equip the church for what? The work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ. Until when? Until we die, basically. And this, once again, points us to membership in the local body as a biblical idea. Ben Merkel says, if all believers are expected to serve the church by using their gift, then it follows that a formal commitment to a local church is a necessary component to facilitate the use of these gifts. So what Paul says, the role of member and pastor is, seems to run counter to how we might typically think of member and pastor. We might think of members as consumers or customers or country civic social club members. We might think of pastors as hirelings, hired hands, the church gets to do the work of ministry. Or we can think of pastors as CEOs, like church is a business. We can think of pastors as chaplains, they preach and do visits, that's the extent of their authority. These are all faulty views of the role of pastor and member. It's no surprise then that many view church with consumeristic and entitlement mentalities. It misunderstands not only the nature of the church, but the biblical roles of both member and pastor because those models view members as spectators in a service catered to their desires, and the pastors are the one charged with creating a service that will satisfy the customers. But Paul has a better way. He has a better model in mind. He sees the church... As Christians who have covenanted themselves to one another to come to the gathering, this, in order to be equipped to do ministry in their day-to-day -day life. In other words, the role of the pastors is to lead and train the members in order that they may be equipped to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which they have been called. John Lehman says the weekly gathering is a time of job training. It's where those in the office of pastor equip those in the office of member to know the gospel, to live by the gospel, to protect the church's gospel witness, and to extend the gospel's reach into one another's lives and among outsiders. Now, if you just think about it for a little bit, this just makes good and right sense. Someone said that no matter how gifted and effective the pastor might be, their impact pales in comparison with what the church can do when unleashed by the power of the Spirit to exercise their spiritual gifts. That just makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, what's, what's logically more effective? A couple of fellas doing the ministry or a couple hundred brothers and sisters who have covenanted with one another, coming together to get trained to go live in a manner worthy of the calling with which they have been called? Which one makes more sense? A couple or hundreds? This is why we, your pastors, both emphasize the importance of coming to the gathering as life priority and the fact that ministry does not primarily happen in this building. 
Some ministry happens here, of course, the ministry of edification, using of gifts to build up the body. But ministry is primarily to happen in your everyday life. That's God's design. Just think of the enormous impact you all can have by being spread out throughout the community, working and living and playing and neighboring. Think of the impact you can have just by walking in the gospel in the position that God has placed you in, in your work and recreation and neighborhood. Do you realize that, I wonder? Do you realize that God has placed you where you are on purpose? Not to build your own kingdom, but to serve and point to his. And can I ask, are you doing that? Are you leveraging your work and your neighborhood and your recreation and your influence and your relationships in order to show the gospel and point people to it? That's your call. That's your mission. Let's illustrate it by using a sports analogy. We can say that this weekly gathering in the worship service is practice, where the plays are drawn up and training happens. Okay? We come together, we're told the plays, we recognize our part on the team, and then we leave to go play the game. But this works only if, one, we come to practice, and two, we go out and run the plays in our daily lives. A team is only a team if it plays, right? And a team is still a team when it scatters, but if it doesn't gather, it's not a team. It would be wasteful if we got the plays and we practiced and then never played a single snap. Christian, do you realize that your number is being called in every day of your life? Don't have your number called and run into the tunnel, take off your uniform, and doom scroll Facebook while you eat bonbons. Get in the game. God intends to use your life for his glory. Now let me ask this. What happens when a player on a team decides not to do their part? Does the whole team suffer? Why? Because they have to make up for them. But what happens when every player does their part regardless of what it is? There's unity and strength and victory. Now let's press into this analogy a little bit more. Think about the topic of the unity, which is part of Paul's point. Let me ask this. Sport fan, if you're a sport fan, who are the loudest people when it comes to sports? It's not the players, is it? It's the talking heads, the analysts. And do you know who the biggest critiques, cr critics, critiquers, and most divisive analysts are? Three come to my mind. Skip Bayless. You guys know Skip Bayless? I can't stand that guy. Stephen A. Smith and Colin Cowherd. And do you notice that these loudest critics are also not players? They never played a single play in any professional sport, yet they are the loudest and most divisive. Why? Because they have plenty of time to sit back, don't they? And analyze because they aren't busy playing or practicing. What you'll find in the church is that those who are most divisive, those who give themselves to gossip and harmful speech, those who are the ones who aren't in the game. They're not doing ministry. Because if they were, there wouldn't be time to criticize, critique, and tear down. They'd be too busy building up the body and doing the work of the ministry to waste their time on those distractions. As Babe Ruth said, the loudest boos come from the cheapest seats. Healthy church members come to the gathering as often as possible. They make it a life priority for them and their family. They get fed from the word of God, which shapes them and molds them. They fight for unity, and they go and leverage their lives for the glory of Christ. So it is your pastor's job to feed you not sugary sweets, but the good food of the word of God, to lead you to health to do everything we can to point you to Christ and foster an environment where you can grow in the Lord. That should be your charge to us, to feed you good food, to point you to Jesus and away from us. Paul says that God is charging pastors with watching over his kids, and he has specific instructions on what that looks like. And here we see one of the biggest ones is to equip you for navigation as sojourners in a fallen world, okay? I mean, you think of if you hired a babysitter to watch your kids, you gave specific instructions. You said, feed them a good meal, 
Absolutely no sweets. Make sure they do their homework. No TV whatsoever. Put them in bed by nine. We'll be back shortly after that. Okay? What just happened? You put your most precious possession in the hands of this person, and under your authority, you told them how to take care of them. Okay, you come home after 10. The kids are not only still awake, they're eating raw cookie dough dipped in chocolate covered in gummy worms. Unfinished homework is strewn about the land. The TV is on to an R-rated movie, and the babysitter is asleep in the master bedroom. Are you, would you be upset, I wonder? Of course you would, right? But what if the babysitter said, you said, explain yourself. And the babysitter said, the kids each wanted a different thing, and they had different ideas for how things should go, and they bickered with each other. I just listened to them, and I sort of gave up. Can I have my $50 now? That would be an outrageous dereliction of duty, wouldn't it? God is saying through his word, here is how the church should look. And it's on us to give shape and direction to that, to feed you good food so that you can be shaped by the word, unite around the gospel, and leverage your life for the kingdom. Okay, lastly, quickly, to what end? Number three, a healthy church member zealously pursues maturity. Healthy church member zealously pursues maturity. Now, you'll notice that Paul mixes his metaphors a little in verses 12 through 16. He mixes body and building metaphors to get across two main points, unity and growth or maturation. So if you look down at your text, let me point these out to you real quick. Building and body imagery, verse 12, equipping, verse 12, building up, verse 13, all attain, verse 13, growing into a mature man, verse 13, measure of stature, verse 15, growing up into him who is head, verse 16, whole body, being fitted and held together by every joint, verse 16, according to the proper working of each part, verse 16, causes growth of the body, verse 16, for the building up itself in love. The goal of ministry and of membership then is this. The building up of the body of Christ into maturity. Paul's desire here is clearly that Christians will reflect Christ's virtues and likeness in their own lives. The beauty of what Paul is painting in this section is that Christ gives grace, which includes gifts, and that we are members of one another like body parts or bricks in a building, is that both Christ grows us and gives us the ability to grow one another. Thabiti says, when we serve others in the church, bear with one another, love one another, correct one another, encourage one another, we participate in a kind of spiritual co-op where our stores and supplies are multiplied. The end result is growth and discipleship. So Christ is both our prize and goal. And notice that Paul tells the church to speak of, of a verse you probably know, speak the truth in love. In other words, he's saying accept the truth of the gospel and speak it out loud in the corporate gatherings of worship. Talk about it with fellow believers. Uphold it firmly. That's why, if you'll notice, your pastors emphasize the reading of the word and the preaching of the word and the singing of the word in congregational singing because, in part, that is us speaking the truth in love. Do you realize that when you come together in these gatherings and you sing gospel songs, that you are speaking the truth in love to the people around you? Do you realize that you are, you are singing the gospel to your brothers and sisters for their benefit? But you notice, Paul also contrasts mature manhood with ceasing to be children tossed about by waves, being hoodwinked by false teaching and licentious behavior that res relaxes the gospel commands to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And as we hold tight, to the gospel, do the work of ministry, use our spiritual gifts, hold one another accountable, love one another in word and deed. We will mature one another and shed our childlike propensity towards false doctrine, divisiveness, and laxity. Your goal as a church member should be to help your fellow member grow into maturity. That should be your goal. This means like a good parent, disciplining one another in love to help one another learn and to kill sin, our goal is Christ, to look to him, to embody his characteristics, to be holy as he is holy, and he gives us the resources to do it by the both indwelling spirit and one another. 
Now, Paul's painting this picture here of, picture if, uh, like a steeple, like an old church steeple. And imagine if the steeple is being held high by a crane. It's just being held aloft in the air, and the steeple represents Christ. Now, the building isn't finished yet, but it is being built. And rather than being completed and then the steeple being placed on top, the building is being built in order to meet the steeple in the air. That's the picture Paul is painting for us. That's our goal, to build one another up until we meet uh, Christ's likeness and mature manhood. So church membership means taking responsibility, in summary, to oversight and care of one another until we reach mature manhood. It means protecting one another from deceitful teaching. It means reining one another in when we see a brother or sister tossed and to and fro by the waves of false doctrine or unrepentant sin with the goal of restoration. It means coming to the gathering and getting equipped, using our gifts, speaking the gospel to each other. Church membership means pursuit of humility and gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another. It means being diligent to make haste, to be zealous, to be eager, to spare no effort, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. It means holding fast to the confession of faith, to contend for the faith which has once and for all been handed to us, to the saints. It means seeing the blood of Jesus as the most powerful binding force in the universe and more powerful than any goofy thing that threatens to tear us apart. It means confessing one Lord and one body, being joined together by one spirit, having been baptized into the one faith, and being first and foremost concerned with the glory of the one God who is over all and in all and all and all. It means committing, it means staying, it means selflessly serving, it means getting equipped in order to build up, grow up, working in harmony until we all attain the likeness of Christ. Are you willing to pursue that? Because I promise God's design for the church is about 1,000 times better than anything you and I could come up with on our best day. So let's pursue it together and we'll see God work in ways we never thought possible in us, in one another, in the church, and in the community as we reflect the light of Christ to a world in darkness.